Left Weekly Radio. There's one newspaper that is independent of powerful capitalist interests, and that is Green Left Weekly. It's the people's voice committed to human and civil rights, ecological sustainability, democracy and equality. It presents ideas that the mainstream media won't. Green Left is a leading source of local, national and international news with analysis, discussion and debate to strengthen the anti-capitalist movement. It helps expose the lies of the capitalist press and puts the voices of the marginalised and the oppressed at the centre of fighting for a better world and helps us understand the political developments unfolding around us. Good morning, listeners. You are listening to Green Left Radio. And for our program today, you have, for your presenters, you have myself, Jacob. And me, Leo. Yeah. So before I would like to announce, um, well, where, before we go through some of the headline news and some of the pro, um, and some of what we have lined up for our program, I'd like to acknowledge today that FreeCR is being broadcast to you from the Wandry land of the Kulin Nation. I like to acknowledge that this always was, always will be Aboriginal land, and that sovereignty was never ceded. Yeah. So good morning, Leo. And um, I guess probably the main thing we want to, I guess, I guess probably maybe to start off a bit, well, I'll start off, I guess, a bit of a kind of news discussion going on. There's been quite a lot of different things happening in the world. And of course, probably the main thing that has obviously sort of dominated um, politics in you know, the past several weeks in, in Australia has been the COVID-19 pandemic. But I guess we'll probably talk a bit more about that later. There's a few sort of announcements we, we might want to sort of discuss in relation to that. But I saw one interesting sort of news story, and this, and probably one, this news story kind of comes from the fact that I am into sort of um, playing um, computer games. And this is sort of like an interesting sort of story about, you know, the example of the monopolization within the capitalist um, system. Now, this is a story, basically, Microsoft, which is, everyone knows, Microsoft is um, the one that makes um, Windows, you know, they have a monopoly on the computer industry. And now they're sort of, um, since since they started, ent- started, since they entered the video game industry with the launch of the Xbox, um, they have been since been trying to build up um, a, a project with which is you know the Xbox Game Pass, which is sort of like it's like a video game sort of subscription service, which is basically aimed, which is basically aiming to be the Netflix of video games. Now, one of the more interesting sort of things coming out of this, and this is an example of the sort of monopolization of the industry, is Microsoft have just recently bought and acquired Activision Blizzard. Now, people probably know Activision Blizzard are probably like the developers of video games such as Call of Duty, which is probably one of the more popular sort of mainstream sort of video games. Now, one of the more disturbing things about the story, though, is um, Activision Blizzard has been in the midst of a, of a scandal. Basically, many of the workers and uh, female workers have kind of been speaking out about you know, um, about this proportional, um, this sexual harassment culture within the workplace. And of course, Activision Blizzard has, you know, even faced court action, etc. So you can kind of imagine that this was a kind of good opportunity for Microsoft to buy this company because as a result, clearly of the, of the scandal, they're probably, their stocks probably went down, etc. They're probably less valuable than what they would have been kind of otherwise. But I guess, yeah, what I think this kind of reveals, I think, 
the the sort of increased monopolization of our industry and it's essentially Microsoft is attempting to monopolize the gaming industry in a similar way to you know how the likes of like Facebook is attempting to sort of monopolize the social media sort of sphere you know Facebook owns WhatsApp and and Instagram which are like the next big sort of uh, social media platforms. You kind of wonder if they would uh, if they would buy Twitter next, and it's all integrated into, under the same system. And then and then you also have you know Disney, um, who are have you know increasingly monopolising the sort of entertainment industry in terms of film, you know even television, etc. Of course, that is probably a more kind of competitive kind of field because of the existence of uh, industries like. The fact that, you know, the likes of Amazon also have their own sort of media sort of entertainment service and then um, the fact that Netflix also exists on its own. So, yeah, but I think this is just a kind of worrying sort of trend. I think I think the nature of our global kind of capitalist kind of system, which is, you know, increasingly moving towards monopolization and it's happening no matter what sort of industry or product is being produced, it seems to be going into all aspects of, of, of society. Yeah, Leo, do you sort of have any comments to make on it? I mean, uh, not any specifically about Activision Blizzard, but as you mentioned, um, the monopolization is not only the disturbing part. I mean, um, capitalism always had its sort of hooks in the cultural sphere um, for you know ever since it became the dominant economic system worldwide, but it is a bit disturbing when we think about um, just that pervasive, um, you know, capitalist dogma norms are uh, within everyday things that people enjoy, whether it's video games, whether it's uh, film and TV and uh, sport as well. We've seen that um, over the last year with some of the sort of um, developments in football and, um, you know, ignoring fans' wishes there. And um, I am curious to see... Um, how sort of, you know, Call of Duty fans, for example, have reacted to this. But I guess that's something we can touch on later. Yeah, I don't I don't think there will probably re- be any real reaction because, um, I mean, the actual reality is Call of Duty was already probably one of the most commodified video games in the world. So it's sort of like it doesn't really make much of a difference whether it's owned by Microsoft or anything. And there's probably not going to be any decreased quality in the game either way because they're already quite... Monontis in terms mm. of how they release them. Yeah, it is one of the most commodified sort of video games. They come out every year to to basically maximise profit margins and basically sort of suck people into basically buying the games every sort of year kind of thing, like a sort of sports sort of game. Mm. But yeah, that's just guess a kind of one story. And I guess, Leo, did you want to sort of start off a bit of discussion about um, what's, I guess, happening in um, Ukraine and Russia, and I guess any sort of comments there? Sure, yeah. From an international perspective, um, this has been one of the uh, main sort of stories um, in the foreign affairs sphere, and it has to do with um, increasing tension uh, between Ukraine and Russia. Uh, this sort of started towards the end of last year, around December, when rumours emerged about the possibility for Russia invading um, eastern Ukraine, which is um, ethnically Russian, which has sort of been in a protracted conflict for a number of years now, ever since the sort of Euromaidan um, crisis in 2014. Of course, um, Russia annexed uh, Crimea um, and the sort of eastern parts of Ukraine, Donetsk and uh, Luhansk, has been um, under sort of quasi-Russian paramilitary control. 
Um, but it, it has been an interesting development because uh, we've seen it so many times before and because it's invoked so many um, of the Cold War narratives that we have already seen. Um, Russian nationalism is a really important sort of factor in here. We have to understand that Russian nationalism is Masonic in a way. Russia sees itself as sort of a uh, bulwark to Western sort of dominance. Um, it has a sort of anti-imperialist conception within itself. Uh, there's this whole sort of concept of the Third Rome. Moscow has this um, only remaining European civilization following the fall of Rome and Constantinople. So in the Russian sort of nationalist um, perspective, it's really important to maintain this stand against the West. But in a way, this sort of dilemma between the West and the East is, you know, self-serving. And as we see with other sort of capitalist, imperialist sort of tensions, um, this benefits Putin insofar as he can um, uh, sort of allay domestic troubles. He has been in a bit of a downfall uh, with various uh, economic crises around oil and also uh, pension reforms, which actually he took quite a bit of a hit, and also benefits the West, of course, which... Um, has also been struggling in the east with China and um, with it, and has you know sought to use Russia to sort of distract from it some of its domestic problems. But it is an interesting development, and we'll see what happens with that. Jacob, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, I don't really probably have any kind of. I haven't necessarily been following enough, but I think you gave kind of kind of good summary. I think of all the kind of issues because in, you know in some sense this is not. While a lot of the kind of countries like to project themselves. Like, like we're living in the Cold War. Now, of course, this is not necessarily like, you know, a defense of like, say, you know, the Soviet Union's crimes or not, but there was always a very different dynamic when it was the Soviet Union versus the US kind of, kind of thing. And it's sort of like, it's almost like for countries like the United States and even Russia and with this sort of Cold War sort of narrative, it almost feels like they're kind of unstuck in time. And then, of course, using these sort of narratives to almost, in a sense, almost push these sort of nationalist narratives kind of almost, you know, for for Putin, it's a way of almost, because actually (laughs) since the Soviet Union fell, living standards in Russia actually have gone well down, inequality has kind of increased, etc. It hasn't actually been a good legacy in a sense. And of course, you know, there's there's all, all that all this kind of you know politicking is almost like in a sense some distraction from actually the the actual problems that Russia actually faces, and of course the U.S. is keen to try and take advantage of it because they still have that sort of Cold War mode because they want to um, express their sort of dominant sort of U.S. sort of imperialist sort of hegemony within that um, within that particular region. So yeah, it'll be interesting to kind of see I guess how that all kind of plays out. Yeah, and stay tuned to Green Left Radio to hear those updates. And just briefly, we have a couple of minutes to talk about um, some overnight news. Uh, Jacob, um, overnight the Western Australian Premier Margaret Gowan has um, announced um, that WA's scheduled uh, reopening of their border uh, will be indefinitely postponed. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, so it's kind of interesting. I mean... We haven't necessarily had much commentary on sort of the WA border kind of stuff in the past, especially in terms of kind of COVID. Now, you know, in some sense, okay, given the fact that, you know, we have this Omicron kind of wave uh, that's kind of of hitting country, leading to kind of exponential kind of increases, 
you know, in some sense, you know, you could almost pragmatically say, okay, it's the right thing for the WA border to be closed up to prevent that from kind of happening. But I think we also need to take a bit more of a forward sort of more global kind of thinking kind of approach in terms of how we respond to this, because the actual reality is when you look at the state of the healthcare system in WA, it's already barely coping without COVID in the community. Like that, I think, is... I think are a total kind of outrage in, in a lot of ways because W Western Australia for, because it, um, through its sort of harsh border policies, in fact, their border, their border policies are so harsh that, you know, I know people who haven't been able to see their families for like, for like one, oh, actually they might have had a chance to see their family when, when there was a, a COVID sort of zero moment in, but right now, most, most people who live, um, who live in, who live outside WA have no rights to be able to kind of see their family. So yeah, there's obviously kind of that kind of issue. And then there's also kind of the issue that, yeah, despite the fact that WA has been COVID free for more than two years, the fact that it has kind of done little to actually prepare for any for any sort of COVID cases coming in or even preparing for actually um, any sort of living with COVID or anything. The fact that it hasn't even, um, hasn't even done any sort of accurate kind of preparation because, you know, at the end of the day, the reality of the COVID-19 pandemic is that it is a global pandemic. It's hitting the entire world. Almost every, no country has been able to escape it. Um, probably the only country that is able to, that is in, um, successfully suppressing it right now is China. But the fact that, you know, WA has essentially relied on these, sorely on these harsh kind of borders, I think is, it's, for better or worse, it's really just not sustainable. Like, um, at some point, um, WA is probably going to open at some point and the outcome is probably not going to be that great for the healthcare system. And it's like, well, how, why is it that, and I think it speaks volumes about the capitalist system, that the capitalist system, um, through this pandemic is giving, um, giving this choice of being isolated from the world forever. And in, in, in some sense, if I lived in WA, I would probably feel hmm, a bit, I would definitely feel a bit isolated, um, not being able to leave WA because, you know, I have, there are aspirations that I want to do, uh, besides staying in one part of the and, and the fact that it's giving this false choice between, you know, having a functioning healthcare system uh, and so on and then or remaining ice or you have to remain isolated from what I just think it's like a, 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 a very bad sort of um, choice that is being sort of given um, in, in terms of what the capitalist kind of system is offering us in this case of say WA and in fact that was probably almost a certain economy that we sort of faced with um, Australia and it's sort of reopening as well. But of course, most of the country is now reopened. So it's probably not even really point talk. Uh, um, there's no, real, there's no real point bang, um, being off because in, in, the, in essence, the choice was remaining closed up from the world forever or, oh, well, having to deal with, um, with COVID at some point. So, yeah. Mm. Yeah. I mean, just quickly, you touched on all those points there. And of course, if you do live in WA, you can feel, Frightening to have to face the prospect of having a pandemic um, come to your door when you've had COVID zero for so long. But like you say, we do need that international, internationalist long-term perspective because the alternative is really um, just being isolated forever and that's not sustainable. And at some point, you are going to have to accept that material reality. And just finally, like you say, um, what has the past two you know, years been 
being used for. WA has, you know, billions of dollars of a surplus in their state budget and if their healthcare system isn't coping right now as it is, um, you do wonder how it will be under under COVID and that's just an indictment on the Coma Gown governments and previous governments, both Labor and Liberal. Yeah, and I guess the, the tragic kind of thing is, um, I mean, obviously we, we completely acknowledge that, yeah, it's not like Mark McGowan in, in Fury can just automatically shift the healthcare system overnight. Obviously, you need kind of straining, et cetera. Like, there's, there's no denying that sort of material reality. It's actually more what they did in the past two years, the fact that they've done nothing in terms of preparing I think that is the kind of real sort of sort of outrage that is sort of happening kind of there. And I guess just while um, while we're sort of speaking about some kind of updates related to kind of the COVID-19 pandemic, I guess the other sort of update, and this was a bit of an amusing sort of story. Now, I don't want to really want to comment on... Uh, I mean, I don't really want to comment on, on the question of whether, whether 16 or 70 olds are physically capable of driving a forklift and off. In, in actual reality, probably, you know, it's probably not ideal because of the power dynamic of... Um, um, of 16 to 17 year old age, like I think that's as far as I'll probably go on that. But basically, Morrison in in response, the Morrison government in response to uh, supply chain issues that have been kind of happening as a result of masses of workers um, getting sick of COVID and having to self isolate it, he tried to call a kind of emergency meeting with the cabinet to basically allow um, to allow under 18s to drive forklifts. Now, the weird thing, obviously, about this is. This is pretty much going nowhere because none of the states have agreed to it, as well, at least the major ones have. So Victoria and New South Wales, as far as I know, definitely did not agree with it. But it was such a, it was often, it was actually a very sort of bizarre intervention by the Morrison government because it's almost sort of like telling about the sort of government's kind of approach because it's like, well, actually, probably in terms of like dealing with supply chain sort of issues, there's actually probably lots of, things that the government could actually be doing to to fix that. You know, for example, you know, if they want to ease some pressure on the labour market, I mean, this more applies to the healthcare system, but more if they want to sort of ease some measures on sort of the labour market, or maybe they could consider making childcare free. I mean, that's sort of one one element. Uh, they could also be considering, um, they could also be considering, you know, um, there's still an, um, quite a hot. There's still quite a high unemployment rate um, within um, within Australia. So you know, why isn't it that they aren't thinking about you know giving offering kind of free training, etc., sort of job programs, you know, all those kind of things. But then there's obviously the biggest thing, which is has to do with the the whole COVID reality that we're that we're living in right now, which is the government has refused to make rapid action tests free, and it's like, well, you know, that would probably do more. Uh, to um, to address the whole supply chain issue. Of course, the problem is it's sort of like the government is actually acting reactive, reactively, not proactively in some sense, because in some sense, the government's whole approach to this whole pandemic and whole the whole sort of range is they're only willing to respond when there was when there's an emergency. They're not willing to prepare when they before the emergency moment kind of happens. And I think that's the fact that the Morrison government just keeps scrambling from one little thing to another. I think it, it it just basically reflects, I think, the the bankruptness of this um, of the Morrison government and its failures to actually, you know, serve the needs of ordinary people. <clears throat> yeah, I agree. I think a lot of this sort of reaction, especially online, about this, and I and I struggle to call it a policy proposal because um, it won't really do much to allay the problems in um, 
in uh, that we're currently seeing in supply chains. It's a bit of a brain fart more than anything. Um, some of the reaction has been a bit hyperbolic. Um, you know, 16, 17-year-olds, like you say, probably won't make um, too much of a difference. It's a bit of a sort of gotcha moment for uh, Morrison. But I think if we are to critique the federal government um, in the correct way, I think we should take the position that you just mentioned. And I think... Um, you know, under the sort of leadership of Scott Morrison, um, the government has been very reactive and um, it has no coherent um, policy um, to to really fix the problems that, you know, these capitalist governments have caused. And it reminds me, this sort of brain fart reminds me a lot of the sort of home builder policy that was proposed. You know, we have a huge housing crisis and the government's sort of response is a weird sort of fund for people to renovate their homes. And it's very sort of um, technical. It's very arbitrary and it's very sort of low impact overall. So I think if anything uh, that this sort of um, development shows is that we need sort of bold long-term thinking um, and we need something um, that will put ultimately power in workers and ordinary people um, rather than, go from crisis to crisis, barely scraping by, which has been sort of the MO for the Morrison government in the past few years and something that's, I think, really put a lot of people off the federal government, just the um, lack of preparedness um, it has had for every crisis. Hmm. Yeah, well said, Leo. And I guess we might just go play, we're going to play a quick um, few announcements and we'll get on to our first interview for the program. We're going to be having a discussion with um, Sue Bolton, um, who Moreland councillor and Socialist Alliance member, who recently wrote uh, an opinion piece on the recent decision uh, to deport um, um, Novak Djokovic um, from the tennis player from um, from from the country. And so, yeah, we're going to have a bit of a, a discussion with Sue uh, about that. You are listening to Green Left Radio on Free CR 855 AM. We jail black males in Australia nationally at a rate five times greater than apartheid South Africa jailed black males in 1993. The suicide and self-harm rates are the highest in the world and the life expectancy gap is the biggest in the first world. You know, Australians don't like hearing the truth about how bad things are, but the more we resolve from it, the longer this is going to continue. Black fella, white fella, it doesn't matter what you colour. Mainstream media is not interested in this stuff. It doesn't find space to talk truthfully and deeply about issues that affect all Australians. The only place predominantly you will find that with any real depth is on community radio, and 3CR has been one of the great leaders in that. So if people are wondering where they should spend their hard-earned cash, I would suggest 3CR is a bloody good place to start. What your name is, we got the hell. Lots of changes, we need more brothers. All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio, and we have our first interview for the program. We're going to be speak. Where we have Sue Bolton on the line, who is a Moreland councillor and member of Socialist Lines, and she is also want to highlight. She is also a, a regular guest that we have on for the Green Left Radio program. 
And Sue Bolton just recently kind of wrote an opinion piece on um, titled Hypocrisy, God Powers and Djokovic. And you can actually read it up online on the Greenleft website at greenleft.org.au. But basically responding, I guess, to the decision of Novak Djokovic being booted out of Australia on January 15th after Federal um, Immigration Minister Alex Hawke used a special power to overturn a Federal Circuit Court decision which had said the world yeah, well, whatever that word. But I was going to pass it on to sort of Leo to maybe start off the discussion. So good morning, Sue. Hi, how's it going? Hey, Sue. Welcome to the program. Leo here. Um, just to start Hi, off Leo. the interview, um, w- when you write about these God powers that the minister has um, under the Act, what does this refer to and um, how has it been used in the Djokovic case and why is it so um, problematic? Yes, well, um, I think the God powers are how well have been um, called that by many refugee activists and immigration lawyers. Most people in Australia wouldn't be aware of these powers at all, and they were originally introduced to allow for more humanitarian kind of decisions when someone might. Uh, be a genuine refugee but not really fit the narrow uh, narrow definition of refugee because the UN, UN uh, definition for refugee is really quite narrow and doesn't necessarily cover a whole lot of different forms of persecution such as um, incredible levels of family violence and so forth. So um, that, that was why those powers were introduced. But they give the minister incredible powers and they've been strengthened over the years. Um, so, so they've, um, you know, and, and they, usually they're used in a way, um, well, that usually the minister refuses to use them for what they were meant to be used for, like um, uh, granting refugee status to refugees, um, such as the Tamil family from Biloela who've been waiting for ministerial intervention for years, the minister could simply grant them refugee status, um, but he's refused to do that. And then on other ca- occasions, the um, minister has used these powers to overturn um, you know, immigration decisions such as granting visas to two au pairs who'd been hired by um, by the um, CEO of the AFL, um, Gillan McLaughlin, um, who'd overstayed their visas. Or in another case, um, one of the... One of the immigration ministers from the Liberal Party was found to have... Um, you know, granted visas for cash. Um, one of the immigration ministers, Amanda Vanstone, gave a visa to one of the well-known mafia figures in Melbourne who was later found to be running a massive drug empire. And Peter Dutton, when he was um, immigration minister, also used, you know, used his powers to grant visas to, uh, you know, similarly obnoxious people to the mafia, but have refused to use the powers in favour of refugees. And in, since 2014, when they made a change to the Act, 
the minister basically can use these powers to strip someone of a visa on character grounds and it's um, on, on this basis that there are a whole lot of refugees who've been found to be refugees um, who were either never allowed out into the community on the, uh, to, on the basis of character grounds or else they might have carried out some minor traffic demeanours and be stripped of their visa and put straight back into detention awaiting deportation. Just or while else. you're... Sorry to interrupt, mm-hmm. Sue. Just while you're mm-hmm. talking about those character grounds, that raises a very sort of interesting point um, about this case specifically um, because there's been a lot of talk about Djokovic being um, deported for either um, you know lying or making an administrative mistake on his um, documents or, of course, not being vaccinated. But in reality, these two um, um, reasons, justifications, weren't actually cited by the government in court. The reason for his deportation was, as sort of um, lawyers for Alex Hawke mentioned, was that he could incite sort of anti-vaccination sentiment. Now, I don't agree with Djokovic's views on um, uh, vaccination. I think, you know, he could use his platform better um, as, you know, the world number one uh, tennis player. Um, but at the same time, he's not a very, you know, vocal anti-vaxxer. And what sort of precedent do you think this gives about someone um, being denied a visa um, for essentially um, having unpopular, you know, potentially political views? Well, I think this is incredibly dangerous. And I think the fact that the government changed the reason why it stripped Djokovic of his visa... You know, initially they said, you know, it was because he didn't have a valid exemption. And then, you know, after that, after the court overturned his case, you know, Djokovic was found to sort of lied on his, you know, couple of questions um, on his form. But the government decided to change the whole story and go for this totally new angle, which the federal court accepted as being a rational angle um, of Djokovic fueling anti-vaccination sentiment. And, it, like, I think, you know, while he is, you know, I don't, you know, I don't like Djokovic for his views, for his right-wing nationalist views and his anti-vax views, but the minister only quoted an article of Novak explaining his views from 2020 very early in the pandemic, wasn't required to provide any more recent evidence of Novak doing interviews talking about his anti-vax views. Um, and he was ex- ex- he's been excluded on the basis that he's well known and therefore could, you know, could lead other people to good fuel civil unrest. Now, that could be used easily against I don't know, someone who's well-known who comes to Australia, who's well-known, um, you know, Palestine solidarity activist or Palestinian talking about the situation for Palestine or someone opposed to, you know, Australia's military ties with the US. Um, you know, it, it could be... that This is a very dangerous and very political decision by the federal court and by the immigration minister... And the left should absolutely not cheer this. 
mean, while, yes, I can understand why a lot of people in Australia support the decision to throw Djokovic out because, you know, they've seen rich elite over the whole course of the pandemic be able to swan in and out of Australia, you know, um, while everyone else's, you know, the borders have been shut to Australians trying to return home, people trying to visit family. But the thing is, this is not this is not a democratic democratic decision at all. And I also think Djokovic was wasn't coming here to build an anti-vax movement. He was coming here to play tennis, and he happens to have you know anti-vax views and right-wing views on Serbian pol- on politics in the Balkans. Yeah. But well, I want to jump in with the reason. Yeah. I just wanted to jump in um, with a question there, um, Sue, because you're sort of getting into, I think, the next kind of aspect of this um, whole kind of discussion. Because you you mentioned before that, um, yeah, the, it does seem to me that opinion polls or you know general sort of sentiment in uh, in society supports this decision to deport um, Djokovic on the basis of his political views. But I think there's I guess a kind of another kind of angle here, and that is the fact is there is a federal election coming up, and Morrison, I guess, what can you comment about how Morrison has sort of used border politics in and and the case this case of the, of Djokovic to actually benefit himself um, politically? Like, you know, what what is sort of your comments and kind of some of perspectives there? Well, I think the obvious point there is. Djokovic is a distraction from, uh, and it is used by politicians, capitalist politicians all the time. Um, Djokovic is a distraction from the fact that the shells are bare, they're trying to send COVID positive workers back to work, they're, no one can find testing um, for the virus, no one can find these rapid tests for the virus. Um, the whole, the government is in absolute crisis over its you know, handling of the pandemic over summer um, because they forgot that tens of thousands of people getting sick means a a lot of people not going to work. Therefore, um, it's going to mean, you know, shelves are going to be bare or there won't be people to drive the trucks or whatever, not adequate people. And so they're looking for a distraction, any old distraction. And we know from the past, and, and I believe this is why the Liberal Party initially changed and really started attacking refugees. They've always done this. They've attacked refugees in the past uh, and now, and, and they're doing this to Djokovic simply to distract attention from their own total um, stuff-ups. And it's also incredibly hypocritical because they've got very vocal anti-vaxxers in their own ranks as liberal national politicians who are actually probably much more vocal than Novak Djokovic and they're still members of the Liberal and National Party. They've never never moved to expel George Christensen from the party or the range of other anti-vaxxers in their ranks uh, of liberal politicians Um, and they probably actually do much more damage in terms of creating anti-vax sentiment because my understanding, which I might be wrong, but my understanding is um, that if the only article that they could find where Novak Djokovic talked about his anti-vax views was sometime in mid-2020, 
2020, then, you know, really, I mean, the guy's got right-wing views on this question, but he's not, um, he's not actively campaigning, as far as I know. Yeah, so it's a I think... distraction. I think you're right on that, um, Sue. So I think Novak Djokovic, um, you know, as... I think his anti-vax views stem from his sort of very strange sort of understanding of medicine and sort of natural um, therapies. But like you say, he hasn't been very vocal on this sort of issue. I think, you know, as sort of much as I disagree with his anti-vax views, for the most part, he has sort of kept it private and appealed to this sort of sense of privacy. And as you mentioned, there's been this, you know, grotesque hypocrisy about, um, you know, a tennis player who's going to be here for two, three weeks max, uh, apparently stoking anti-vax sentiments when there's, you know, MPs um, serving committee roles in Parliament um, who do so much more to fuel this misinformation, um, not being reprimanded at all. So it does sort of pose this hypocrisy about, you know, if it's an Australian, uh, if it's a Liberal sort of party member doing this, it's okay. But, you know, when a foreigner comes in, um, suddenly it's a danger, it's a health sort of risk. So I guess just the final question for this interview to wrap up is, what does this sort of reveal about Fortress Australia and um, Australians' tendency, including the Australian public? Because like you say, the public very much support this. Um, the public's sort of um, tendency just to um, use borders um, as the solution to any threat and to any sort of uncomfortable questions posed. Well, I think what it shows is this is a tried and true tactic of the Liberal Party, uh, of the LNP, to dream up some terror threat or some sort of um, refu- uh, some sort of means of demonising refugees or some other border issue, so that they can try and say to Australians, "You're under threat." Um, and this goes back, it goes back to when all the Vietnamese refugees were coming to Australia, goes back to the white Australia policy, um, is trying to create a sense of amongst Australians that you're being invaded by people from the outside. And so that's what, you know, that's what the government's drawn on in Djokovic's case. That's what Howard drew on when he stopped the Tampa from landing in Australia to uh, allow the refugees to disembark. And it's a tried and true thing, and it's just so outrageous. And unless people have um, contact with this system, a lot of people don't realise how bad things are. And, you know, this is why we've sort of got all of these people sitting in detention centres at the moment um, so these people aren't refugees, but these people have failed the so-called character test. Some of them have lived in Australia since they were babies, have no ties with their the country of their birth, and they're facing de- deportation because they have served more than 12 months in prison. Some might have even done this when they were teenagers, and then years later they've been picked up on this character test. And... You know, one man in uh, the Broadmeadows Detention Centre has 11 kids his, and grandkids. He's been here since he was two. He doesn't have any ties with Tonga anymore. Um, and 
doesn't speak the language, and he's being deported. Um, and, you know, in the past, there have been people with severe mental illness to the point of psychosis who've simply been deported and dumped in a country homeless um, where they speak, don't speak the language. They've just been wandering around in the snow in front of the Australian embassy in Turkey. Um, that was one example I remember, a man with severe psychosis. So these are people who've done their time in prison. Um, they're products of Australian society because they've grown up here. Um, they, you know, this is like a double penalty. And in some cases, some of these people might be carers for other family members and so forth. So this is, you know, there are all sorts of really terrible things that happen through the immigration system of families being who are torn apart. But a lot of people, unless um, they've experienced these situations, don't realise how bad the, our border, these border control policies are and the injustices that happen through the Immigration Act. Well, thank you very much, Sue. I think that's um, a very good kind of note to kind of end on. And, yeah, I think this has definitely been a very kind of good discussion because um, discussing, you know, the question of Fortress Australia and and border politics, especially how the Australian government has consistently tried to use this for their own political gain and, of course, the harm that has, you know, done towards, you know, people from kind of marginalised kind of communities. And, of course, even then, um, one of the other strange things is this COVID-19 pandemic has even opened up the kind of injustice to even more sections of, of people because, you know, there are many uh, Australians um, who have not been able to come home during the pandemic and it's only because things have, it's only in the context of some, the reopening of society, etc., that things have only slightly gotten better in the score. But, you know, for the past two years, many Australians were were prevented from seeing their families um, at the border. So I think, you know, there's all sorts of complexities that are kind of happening with, you know, Australia's kind of border regime. And I think, you know, we have to be speaking out consistently against all these injustices that continue to occur. Yeah, thanks again for joining us, Soup. Thanks. Bye. All right. We'll just um, speaking to Sue Bolton, um, Moreland kind of counsellor um, and member of Social Science, who just recently you can read um, her opinion piece on um, Green Left, which I think it's um, it's on it's on the um, the page, which is it's titled Hypocrisy, God Powers, and Djokovic. Now, I think I was going to go play a quick announcement, and I thought I might be, we'll just take a bit of a, a breather and maybe we'll play a bit of a song. So I'll just play a quick announcement, and you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR. 855 AM. Get your radical summer attire sorted. New stock of 3CR Radical Radio tees has just landed, featuring the iconic antenna design by artist Emily Floyd. As well as our basic black, we have a range of great pastel and primary colours in a variety of sizes. And for those radical little people, we have a short run of kids' tees available too. For just $30 for adults or $20 for kids, you can get yourself a local, ethically manufactured and printed tea that supports Radical Community Radio. We can send one out in the post and there's Click and Collect from our studios at 21 Smith Street, Fitzroy. Or if you're fully vaxxed, you can drop in and browse our t-shirt rack during business hours. To purchase online, go to 3cr.org.au forward slash shop.
All right, you're listening to Green Left Radio on Free CR 855 AM. Before we have a bit of a discussion drawing on some articles from this week's Green Left, which the first issue of Green Left actually came, um, actually came out um, this week, um, well, first issue of the year, I thought uh, I thought that we would play a bit of a so- a bit of a song. So I was going to play History Eraser by Courtney Barnett. You're listening to Green Left Radio, Free CR. 855 AM. I got drunk and fell asleep atop the sheets, but luckily I left the heater on. And in my dreams I wrote the best song that I've ever written. I can't remember how it's all. I stayed drunk and fell awake. I was cycling on a plane and far away I heard you say you like me.
Okay, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. So I thought maybe for a bit of a kind of discussion, we'll draw from this article from Green Left, which you can actually read online on the, um, the, um, on the website, which is, it's a bit of a positive kind of news story because in the context of the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, clearly Australia's not really been a leading success story uh, at the moment with its um, current sort of um, botch sort of handling of of what everything that's sort of happening with the supply chain issues, uh, the massive number of cases, and um, or, 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 or and so on. And what's quite interesting, and I think, and this is 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 the kind of example that Cuba has kind of shown in this kind of crisis. And this article is titled "Cuba Shows an Alternative to Big Pharma Hegemony Through." global solidarity and basically to kind of start off the a bit i guess the kind of discussion cuba has fully vaccinated more than 85 percent of its population and of course another seven percent have received their first dose and now what's quite striking you know while you know while cuba is in in relative terms, Cuba is an island nation compared to sort of other kind of countries that we're sort of making the comparison to. But, you know, at the same time, it is also a country that is impacted by a trade embargo. Uh, it is quite isolated from the rest of the world as a result of that embargo. And it has, but it, but this, this vaccination rate is actually far higher than most other developed countries, including the United States. And also one of the other kind of impressive things is in Cuba, um, children below five years of age have been, uh, have been vaccinated. Now, of course, I'm sort of like divided on whether, on the practicalities of that, but you know, all power to Cuba if they've, if they've able to do that. But big pharma companies ha- are still developing vaccines for this age group. And of course, the vaccine drive in Cuba includes children from the age two to 18. Meanwhile, of course, you can also point in comparison, Highly developed countries such as those in the European Union, Britain, the US, really have only managed to fully vaccinate 60 to 70 percent of their population. And I think that's sort of it's a little bit striking in that sense because what, one of the sort of interesting things about Cuba, and, and this is sort of not something that's actually necessarily mentioned in the article, but I thought I would kind of mention it. But and I'm um, I think Leo, you might want to jump in with a bit of a, a kind of perspective on this, but. It's kind of interesting, but in, in, across Europe and the United States and most Western countries, Australia has actually had less of a problem with this, actually, despite the fact that we've spoken about, but within a lot of these sort of rich sort of global North countries, they all seem to have a kind of a certain sort of issue with anti-vaxxer sort of sentiment. And in fact, the right have actually deliberately politicized vaccination, which is actually contributing kind of this. Now, the response of most European governments and Australia was one of these kind of responses um, was to just impose very kind of heavy-handed kind of mandates. So heavy-handed mandates, basically mandates to be able to access a restaurant um, um, and so on, mandates to be able to work and, but, you know, one of the things that Cuba kind of shows is actually it's achieved these high vaccination rates without mandates. And of course, in general, um, and I think I might have um, said this kind of before, in general, a lot of countries from the global south don't necessarily have an issue with um, with anti-vaccination views, and it tends to actually be more product of, you know, within sort of rich sort of Western sort of um, developed kind of countries. And I guess, yeah, before we go into some, some of the next points from this article, I wonder if, um, Leo, you had any sort of uh, opinions on that? 
Yeah, I find the phenomenon of anti-vaccination, especially on COVID-19, very interesting. And, you know, there's no doubt myriad of factors at play here. Um, but you are right to point out that Europe has um, struggled with vaccination rates. Um, obviously, different countries have sort of varied. Australia, you know, generally speaking, internationally, has quite a good rate of um, vaccines. And I think it's attributable attributable to a lot of things in some of the sort of poorer European countries, such as sort of Bosnia and Herzegovina, where I've sort of just recently been overseas. A lot of it has to do with um, risk aversion when, you know, you've got problems such as corruption, unemployment, being ravaged by war, um, you know, vaccination isn't um, at the heart of your sort of um, importance. Um, you know, you think if you can survive this, you can survive all these other things. Um but in other states that are richer, uh, EU states, I think it is a matter of um, distrust in governments as being one sort of um, factor. And I think that's compounded by um, really strict vaccine mandates, um, like you mentioned, because um, it further creates tension and in many instances pushes people um in the opposite um, direction. I think Portugal is a good sort of example to look at when we're comparing it to Cuba because um, Portugal, um, its health system um, has been relatively well funded and um, its approach to drug liberalisation in particular has been one which, you know, seeks to cultivate this trust um, and integrate the health system with with the people and um, not criminalise a lot of these um, public health interventions. Um, which I think goes back to your overall point that um, when there is a relative level of trust within the government, when there is a well-funded public health system, when there isn't that sort of social um, tension, lack of cohesion that you know often emerges when we have problems of capitalism, such as homelessness, unemployment, etc., etc., um, you do get a vaccination rate that is really solid without authoritarian sort of top-down mandates, which I think is the ideal situation um, that we should be aiming for. Yeah, and I think you just... This kind of issue of trust in political institutions is actually an important point because it actually leads into sort of the next point I kind of wanted to draw from the Green Left article that we've been kind of discussing about Cuba, which is... Okay, so, you know, the basic sort of backstory, Cuba has kind of used its sort of own technology and its um, own resources because of the trade embargo. It doesn't necessarily have access to um, a lot of kind of a lot of the kind of technology that most sort of developed countries kind of have in terms of developing vaccines. But one of the sort of interesting kind of things is that Cuba has had this kind of real international kind of solidarity approach. And in fact, it is actually openly kind of sharing these vaccines to other countries that have approved them, like including Venezuela, Vietnam, Iran, Nicaragua, and Argentina and Mexico that have, um, other, um, that have, um, either approved the COVID Cuba vaccine or, um, or expressed interest in kind of doing so. And I guess one of the other kind of things as well is, you know, on one of the kind of is this, the impacts of this trade embargo has kind of meant that, you know, um, it's meant that they've not been able to have the kind of raw kind of materials and the um, diagnostics to um, to be able to make um, to be able to even get syringes, for example. And then I guess the other kind of things is this, and just as relates to kind of your point, it, this is in sharp contrast to the big pharma companies who have been who are the ones making the vaccines at the end of the day, because 
um, ultimately, at the end of the day, all of the vaccines that we use are all painted. And of course, they and through intellectual property um, property law, you know, these big pharmaceutical companies make massive kind of profits. And of course, you could kind of understand like distrust when you have this situation where big pharmaceutical companies are completely unaccountable to the population. Yes, that would create a certain level of distrust. And of course, I noticed that a lot of the anti-vax sort of conspiracy theorists actually draw on, you know, this sort of fear of big pharma. And of course, yeah, as a socialist, I think big pharma are terrible. I don't think they're terrible because they're deliberately kind of poisoning the world, but there's a, there's a real, there's a real material basis for why people would be distrustful of these medical organizations. Mm. And the point that you made there about, um, patents is really important because that's another sort of different perspective I've had, um, from being overseas in Bosnia and Herzegovina. A lot of second and third world countries, um, have actually approved way more vaccines than a lot of Western nations have because, um, when you are struggling to get vaccines, you take any, you can get your hands on and I think there has been an insidious sort of move um, by big pharma and a lot of Western governments to discredit um, vaccines that aren't basically the major two um, Pfizer and Moderna used worldwide. I think we've seen a sort of quite concentra- concerted campaign against the AstraZeneca virus in a lot of Western nations. Vaccine, you mean not virus? Yep, but uh, uh, AstraZeneca uh, vaccine. Um, in a lot of Western states because it is one of the few that's been produced um, in a public sort of way that's very sort of accessible to a lot of third um, world nations. You know, we've seen, and often it's mired of, you know, quite nasty sort of um, russophobic or sinophobic um, sentiment or, you know, who knows what the Russians, who knows what the Chinese put in this sort of vaccine, um, which is why this sort of um, move back the Cuban vaccines is so inspiring and, um it's both coupled with good news in the way that Cuba has demonstrated its ability to export these um, to a lot of states that haven't been able to get their hands on any virus because of the West's sort of um, uh, unwillingness to provide them. You know, a lot of Western states have big booster campaigns. Israel's already on the you know, fourth dose of administering vaccines, whereas a lot of African states haven't even gotten the, their first dose. And I think that shows that... Um, Unfortunately, for a lot of the global south, um, their hope of reaching those important vaccine targets is going to be relied on, you know, comparatively poorer countries like Cuba, which I think if we're taking a broader perspective, that's going to be one of the things that's ultimately going to end this pandemic. It's not going to be boost the sort of campaigns um, in Western countries as important as they are. But if we want to avert these, you know, new variants, um, we really are going to have to vaccinate the entire world. And Cuba is um, doing its part and really punching above its weight here. Mm. Yeah, and um, just going, um, I'll probably, we can end this discussion with this last point I was going to make, which actually just um, goes, um, follows on from what you just sort of um, made from about the need to kind of vaccinate the entire world. There was actually an interesting article that was actually published um, in The Economist actually recently about what will it cost to end the pandemic. Now, this was written in kind of May 29th. Now, um, according to the IMF, um, apparently it would cost $50 billion, um to end this pandemic. And part of what that kind of involves is it essentially involves um, basically that it, it could be possible to end the acute phase of the pandemic early next year, i.e. 
early next year as in this year right now because that, that article was written last year in May. If we were able to vaccinate at least 60% of the population of every single country in the world. Now, you know, the fact that that is not the ambition of our capitalist leaders to actually kind of vaccinate kind of the world, you know, they all talk about, you know, wanting to return to normal, about going back to kind of business as usual, but they're not willing, they're, they're not willing to foot the bill for that. In fact, the, the actual, the actual reality is they're just conning, they're constantly just wanting to put the cost of living with a highly infectious disease onto us working people. Um, when actually there's a solution that can be done, um, it doesn't necess- it doesn't involve completely. It doesn't involve this. It actually involves vaccination. It involves vaccinating the entire world, and the fact that you know there's no commitment to do that, I think, is one of the biggest sort of injustices that is I think happening in this in this kind of past decade. And I think yeah, it's, as sort of Leo kind of said, yeah, you know, you have a lot of global north countries that um, you know have unlimited sort of access to boosters and 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 so on yet yeah most most of the world has even gone their first dose and i think that is a real kind of outrage and a real indictment of our global capitalist system okay well i might go i'll play um a quick announcement and then i just might make a few announcements uh, unfortunately um we'll get we'll do the activist calendar for a bit but there's sort of not as many events uh to advertise as i was sort of expecting um so I'll give I'll give a bit of a shout to all that soon. You're listening to Green Left Radio. Goongaroo Environment Centre is a grassroots community organisation campaigning for East Gippsland's precious forests. For over 15 years, we've been using direct action, citizen science, and community engagement to stop the continued logging of precious native forests and threatened species habitat. After this summer's terrible bushfires, there's an even greater urgency to protect what remains and the Victorian government haven't ruled out plans to log the small fragments of unburnt forests and so-called salvage log in burnt areas. It's now so important that forests and wildlife are protected so they can recover. Head to gecko.org.au to keep updated with the latest news and to get involved. Gecko acknowledges the logging is happening on the stolen lands of the Gunnakurnai and Bidwell and the Naro people and that sovereignty was never ceded. A 3CR supporter. Okay, you're listening to Green Left Radio on FreeCR 855 AM. Now, I wanted to give a bit of a highlight to some events that are going to be happening um, this or in the coming week. Unfortunately, there's sort of not as much sort of activism um, coming yet. I think we're we're still in a bit of a slow run. Um, I think a lot of people are still coming out of holidays uh, and so on. But the first action I'd like to kind of highlight is um, at 10 a.m. there's actually going to be uh, a protest outside the Liberal Party headquarters, which is now on 257 Collins Street in Melbourne. It's not in the old location that you're probably used to, so this is actually quite close to Flinders Street Station. And this has been uh, this is a SNAP org um, action calling for free um, rat tests outside the Liberal Party um Head office, and this is a, an event that's been organised by the Tomorrow Movement. And I guess one positive thing is the Victorian Trades Hall have, I think, essentially given a bit of an endorsement to kind of the action. So I think, yeah, this should be quite a good kind of event. And the next kind of event I want to sort of highlight is um, there. Um, some of our listeners might have been fascinated by the discussion that we had with Sue Bolton about God Powers. And Refugee Action Collective are actually organising a public forum titled God Powers and, De- and Detention, the Cruel and Arbitrary 
Um, can't get the full time. Sorry, can't. The co- oh, basically, for, um, I'm reading this um, event, but basically, it's an event organised by a refugee action collective. It's happening on Monday, the 31st of January, and that's going to be happening at 6:30 p.m. at the Kathleen Syme Library and Community um, Centre. But it's also happening over Zoom, and it's going to be featuring a number of um, fascinating speakers, including Marie O'Sullivan, uh, who is an associate professor and deputy director of the Castanian Centre for Human Rights Law. And Adan Shupani, who is a refugee in the Park Hotel who came to Australia at the age of 15 and has spent a third of his life detained by Australia. And of course, yeah, the meeting will be both in person and via Zoom. So I think, I think this will be a very good and interesting kind of forum to kind of go to. And I'm just going to try to sort of see what else sort of hap- is sort of happening. Um, unfortunately, let me go look what else events coming up. Yeah, I'm just sort of trying to... Unfortunately, I can't really find much more kind of events sort of coming up um, at this stage. So, yeah, other than note, there has been some... There should be... Refugee Action Collective have been organising some protests. So I definitely recommend probably keeping an eye on it because they've probably been the most sort of active group um, during this pandemic. The other thing... I th- Oh, no, that... that I'm pretty sure that has already kind of happened, so I won't um, mention that. Anyway, that's it, I think, for the kind of green left kind of activist calendar. I was thinking that maybe I might use a bit of opportunity, maybe I'll just play a bit of a, a bit of a song. We are going to be playing, um, we are going to be doing an interview around 8.10 with um, Andrew Hewitt, the Assistant Secretary of Victorian Allied Health Professionals Australia. So, yeah, I'll play, I guess I'll play um, only Bones... Um, Get, um, get, um, get behind, get left behind by Alice Sky. You're listening, or no, I'll play poetry by text by Alex Sky. You're listening to Green Left Radio. i 
Alright, you're listening to Green Left Radio and um, just for listeners before, we're listen- you're listening to the song Poetry by Text by Alex Skye. Now, we're getting, we've got on to our second interview, that live interview that we're doing for the program and we'd like to, we're ha- very happy to introduce Andrew Hewitt, who is the Assistant um, Secretary of the Victorian Allied Health Professionals. Um, so yeah, good morning, um, Andrew. Morning, thank you. Good to, good to speak to you. Yeah. So, um, the fir- um, we're, we're, we're speaking to you today because, um, your union kind of recently had a win, win of winning seven days paid special leave for kind of COVID isolation, uh, for public sector healthcare workers within, um, your union. Now, I guess before I go into kind of the specifics of that victory and the, on the kind of agreement, I guess I want to sort of, I want to kind of hear from you, I guess, about, in the kind of lead-up to this kind of win, what was actually the kind of arrangement? Because it does seem to me like in the in the context of the crisis that we're in with the healthcare system, it would seem to be a bit abnormal, this idea that um, if a healthcare worker were to contract COVID, that they wouldn't be entitled to any kind of special leave and they would have to essentially, in some sense, pay for the isolation on their own or, in some cases, maybe they might get the government support. So, yeah, I guess I want to hear sort of staff, your comments on that. Yeah, thanks, Jacob. I'll just clarify, it wasn't just our union that managed to achieve this. Health unions have been working uh, fairly collaboratively through the pandemic, uh, and this has been an issue uh, for all healthcare workers. Uh, we represent uh, allied health professionals, but the, the same um, rules are applying across the, the health sector. So this is you know, an, an important uh, step in the, uh, in the process of trying to improve the conditions uh, for healthcare workers. And who are under, as we everybody knows, under considerable duress at the moment. But you're right. There was there was a, there was some anomalies in the system that meant that basically, if you uh, were COVID positive and had to isolate or, uh, for a period of time or qu- quarantine, and remember, it was up until not that long ago, it was 14 days was the period of re- that you were required 
under the um, the public health orders to isolate if you were COVID positive before you could return to work uh, and before you could even circulate in the, in the community. Um, that was reduced late last year um, down to seven days. But um, the, during that, uh, up until recently, if you were isolating uh, and were COVID positive um, and symptomatic, then you had to use your own personal leave. But if you were, had to isolate because you were a close contact, um, then you are eligible to actually get uh, paid special leave, on, and it's been kind of loosely termed pandemic leave, but technically it was uh, it was termed um, paid special leave, and that was designed uh, really to ensure people did stay home, um, and so they went out of pocket. So healthcare workers for quite um, some time, up until um, just recently, were having to use dip into their own personal leave uh, if, if they were COVID positive, but if they weren't COVID positive but still had to isolate, then they were getting Paid, uh, paid leave, and that's that's recently changed, and that's that's fairly significant. Uh, and and uh, we're very pleased that we've been able to uh, get that fixed. And yeah, so what can you, I guess, tell us a bit more about um, the victory in the kind of self, especially the kind of type of campaigning that you know, because you mentioned that this was clearly this was a collaborative effort between all the kind of um, health um, health kind of care kind of unions. And yeah, tell us a bit more some of the dynamics of that and the the, the victory that has been secured. Well, it's been it's been an interesting period. There's been um, considerable um, collaboration, as I said, amongst the health unions. But we've also had uh, an incredible amount of access to the uh, to the health department and the government officials throughout the pandemic. And, and, and hats off to them for engaging with with the health unions. Uh, we haven't always got our way, and we haven't always seen eye to eye, and that's that's inevitable. Um, and, and and this is one of those particular uh, issues that. Uh, that we, we've been sort of raising throughout that has been, has been seen as anomalous and, and a problem. And after two years of, of the uh, pandemic, a lot of healthcare workers, they've burnt through their, their sick leave entitlements because uh, it's not just about COVID. Did any of them have any symptoms at all? And, and you know, we've, we've changed the, uh, the culture to some degree that, uh, which for a good thing, uh, in a good way, that, People, you know, traditionally, you know, they'd, they'd soldier on through uh, through the cold or even the flu in some situations, you know, uh, and and go to work to, you know, support their colleagues and, and keep the system running. Uh, and that's we know that now that's unacceptable. And so during the pandemic, that that had to change, and, and people with any sort of symptoms at all had to stay home. Um, and uh, if they stayed home, then they're using their, their sick leave. And as a consequence, there was far more sick leave throughout the pandemic. As a consequence, um, you know, a small small uh, cold, then you have to stay home. Uh, and, that's, that, and, that, and that's the way it should be, uh, so that you're not spreading it to everybody else and you're getting the time to rest and recuperate yourself. Uh, and, but, so over that period, people have used up their sick leave. And, that's, and so we've been raising the issue around, um, around access to sick leave um, throughout. And, uh, and, and it's just been you know, one of those classic scenarios of chipping away, chipping away, chipping away, and, and finally you know, we've got there and, and we've got that, uh, that seven days Thanks for that. Uh, morning, by the way, Andrew. This is Leo, the other presenter. Um, I just wanted to um, ask a bit of a broader question um, about uh, leave in general, because I think one of the things this pandemic has exposed is um, just how precarious um, a lot of the leave entitlements are that many um, workers face, especially casual workers, um, in the midst of a you know really serious um, pandemic. Um, can you? 
briefly speak to um, how um, just how minimal protections the Fair Work Act really offers um, to workers um, who um, aren't in quite secure roles, um, which is sort of a trend we've been seeing with the casualisation of the workforce and um, the importance of workers um, having um, quite flexible sort of leave, um, which, you know, we've seen the introduction of, um, for example, family violence leave, the importance of these various leave entitlements to cover all sorts of situations, if that makes sense. Yeah, it, it does, Leo. And, and look, and, and casuals are a particularly vulnerable part of our workforce, and uh, and we know that. And and they've always, um, you know, um, been exposed by the lack of uh, access to uh, to leave entitlements. Uh, and and that's and it's you know you're right. You're, you're, I'm talking about um, uh, domestic violence leave um, is is an important one. And these are sort of things that you know the unions are, uh, are continually fighting to get recognised and continually fighting to get into their agreements, um, and it's, it's, it is a challenge, um, but it's also uh, an important process. And, and the, the whole the pandemic has exposed that there's a lot of vulnerabilities in, in the system. Um, they were already there, we knew that, but the, the, the pandemic has exposed that when you know, people have been forced um, you know, to take leave. Uh, and to you know, luckily um, for the healthcare workers, there's been there's been considerable. Um, uh, Opportunities for them to access the, the, the special leave, um, other than, as I was saying, that the problem, the anomaly that we have with the uh, if they are isolating because of COVID positive, so that there's been a special leave available if you know for the four-hour period if they um, were going to get their vaccination. Uh, if they had a reaction after the vaccination, then they would get um, two days of special leave. Uh, and if they are now if they're in isolation, then they get the seven days. Um, that's that's really important, but we've identified that the sick leave entitlements for a lot of healthcare workers are inadequate in the background and we've been pushing uh, to get that increased. And uh, enterprise bargaining is, is one of our biggest um, uh, uh, tools or weapons to enforce and ensure that workers have access to adequate leave. And so uh, these these types of leaves, while, while you know there is um, uh, leave entitlements across the board, um, we, you know, we're continually pressing through an enterprise bargain to try and improve access to leave. I mean, and the now in the moments in the uh, in bargaining process for the public sector across the state, and one of our claims is to increase um, access to uh, to sick leave entitlements. All right. Well, um, Andrew, just wondering, I guess um, we've sort of um, covered quite a bit, and I guess, do you have any guess, um, and we're kind of running a bit out of time as well, do you guess have any kind of final comments you sort of want to kind of end on and um, especially get in terms of this kind of discussion? Uh, I, I think, yeah, thanks, Jacob. I think, you know, um, there's so much going on at the moment and the goalposts keep moving, but, you know, we, we're seeing at the moment uh, huge workforce shortages and, uh, that's an opportunity from our point of view to highlight the importance of um, looking after your workers and, and getting better conditions and better uh, entitlements uh, is a good way to do that. And so we're hoping that you know this is a bit of a wake-up for, for employers and the government that they uh, realise how important what the work, their workforce is and hopefully they, they, they listen more to the unions and they uh, uh, address that through better entitlements. 
Well, thank you very much, kind of Andrew, and I guess um, all um, all solidarity to you. I guess your the struggle um, to keep this going because basically, yeah, I imagine like healthcare unions are going to be in a lot and a lot of it, they're going to be doing a lot of campaigning and bargaining over this over the next several months. So yeah, um, all all power to you and 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 congratulations on your victory to secure seven days um, paid special leave for COVID isolation. Yeah, thank you, Jacob, and thank you, Larry. Thanks, Andrew. Bye. All right. So we're just having a discussion with um, Andrew Hewitt, um, the Assistant Secretary of VARPA, about their recent union win of securing seven days paid special leave for COVID isolation. And in fact, um, as kind of Andrew also highlighted, that this was actually also done in collaboration with also a lot of other healthcare um, unions. So because um, VARPA only, um, only sort of covers allied sort of professionals and obviously healthcare workers actually encompass a lot more than um, that. So this victory, I think, was actually um, secured uh, or by the collaboration with a lot of other health unions and also applies to a lot of other kind of sections of healthcare workers. And I actually thought, maybe I'll just go play a quick announcement, but um, there is actually a perfect sort of green left article we can sort of end a bit, um, which was um, written by Fred Friantes, which actually relates entirely to kind of this discussion, but takes it a bit more broadly to non, um, non-healthcare kind of workers. So we'll just have a bit of a discussion about that um, for our program. But I'll just play a, a quick announcement just to, um, I'll just play a quick announcement. You're listening to Green Left Radio, 3CR 855 AM. You know, there's people, like you said, have been on casual for seven years. Well, it's supposed to be casual employment. People want full-time jobs. They don't want to be sitting there casual, not knowing they're going to get any any days, any leave or what's, whatsoever. Especially, you look at all the casuals in the, our industry at the moment, they're sitting home. You know, people want full-time employment and they, sh- they should be entitled to That's full-time right. employment. And look at all the people who were used and abused as casuals in the aged care sector and all the problems that are facing people now and all the deaths that are following in the meatworks, a lot of that's casuals, labour hire, you know, we've got blokes travelling around, you know. We want full-time positions and, you know, that's... And people want it. We want to be full-time employed. You want them to have your Christmas holidays. You want to have time with your family. But when you're a casual, you get none of that. You're listening to 3CR Community Radio 855 AM on digital and online. 3CR Radical Radio. All right, you're listening to Green Left um, Radio. So um, I thought we would kind of end, um, we'll have like seven minutes on the program, but there's actually this short um, article on Green Left which um, kind of um, responds to a kind of recent decision about the Morrison government rolling back the pandemic leave payment. And, of course, this is actually quite relevant in relation to kind of our kind of discussion. So, you know, despite the fact that there's kind of this rapid spread of COVID, lots of workers are... um, having to rec- um stay um stay at um stay at home to recover but essentially the government's sort of approach rather than making workplace safe and expand access to paid pandemic leave um one of the existing sort of pandemic sort of leave that they have which is the pandemic leave kind of disaster payment the government is actually um tightening ed- eligibility and of course these changes will basically affect an estimated 3.7 million kind of workers um who 
who have no access to sick pay and those who are already depleted at their leave entitlements. Casuals, contractors, sole traders and gig economy workers make up the bulk of these cohorts. They also represent a disproportionate number of essential workers feeling the strain. Fred Fronte's kind of writes here. But I guess maybe, Leah, you want to sort of expand on the commentary as well? Yeah, just briefly, um, I think another sort of, um, as we're sort of moving into, I guess, the third year of the pandemic, what we've seen is a lot more people um, experiencing what um, those that are vulnerable in society are experiencing. And we sort of mentioned it previously, border closures. I think the welfare system is another good example, as many were sort of first went on to JobKeeper um, in 2020. We're now seeing... Um, just how um, a lot of people are seeing just how precarious this system is. And I think one of the major reasons for this is just how many hurdles, bureaucratic hoops um, people have to jump through. Um, our welfare system is not a universal one. It's one that has, unfortunately, a lot of means testing and um, uh, and that at every single opportunity, the government finds ways to cut, to lower, uh, to limit eligibility, um, which is really not what we need and um, if we are um, going to live with COVID we have to live with COVID in a way that puts workers first and I think from the previous interview with Andrew Hewitt from this article um, leave paid leave is really really important to make sure people um, don't go to work sick and um, once again if we are to live with COVID it has to be in a way that um, um, benefits the health and safety of workers and um Cutting and limiting leave is not the right way to go about that. Yeah. And I think, um, basically, I think that this kind of reinforces, I think, the importance right now, because really, I would think that in terms of this sort of current sort of COVID-19 kind of situation, the kind of most essential, like, I think in some ways, you know, reflecting a bit on some of the, some of our past experience with the pandemic, I think there's sort of been a certain element where we've, we've sort of, in some sense, might have normalised some of the wrong things because actually the, the thing that we need to be thinking about normalising in terms of this future pandemic is I remember, and this is just a bit of Andrew, because I just worked at this school kind of um, the other day, and I, but I remember working there last year during the kind of COVID-19 pandemic and I overheard these sort of conversation of parents who basically said, oh, um, this child is not showing up to um, to work, um, not showing up to school because they are sick. And um, everyone was like, "Oh, wow, that's actually a good thing." I'm not, it was likely not COVID at that time, um, but because that was at the time where we achieved kind of COVID kind of elimination time. But you know, that just is striking, and and, and I think that is the kind of thing we want to normalise. Like, if you are sick, you know, regardless of whether it's COVID. We want to, um, and COVID actually creates the conditions of this. We want to normalise the idea that if you're sick, well, you stay at home, get better, and and the boss has to pay you, um, pay you for um for the work. Like, I think that is the strong element of what we have to normalise, I guess, in this sort of coming period, um, as we fight for workers' rights in in the in the during this mm. um, global pandemic. And I think that I think is really. Pand- full pandemic leave for every worker who's affected, I think, is really one of the, I think, the key sort of central issues we need to be fighting for. Yeah, we really need to rebuke this whole sort of hustle culture because mm. it doesn't really help with health at all. Yeah. All right. Um, oh, you're listening to... And, of course, I've actually had a lot of oh, terrible experiences being a casual worker of trying to force myself to go to work while sick, and this is all way years before COVID-19 was even a thing. But of course, because of COVID, I wouldn't even entertain the idea of going to sick of work. But as someone who has been 
someone who is a precarious worker, I have been in that situation where I've forced myself to go work despite being sick because I didn't want to lose income. So, it, yeah, it's a very real thing. Okay, well, um, um, the, um, me and Leo would, um, well, Leo can also say some things. I'd like to thank all our listeners and our guests for being on the program and stay tuned for next week. Um, I haven't been able to get the, I will get the past two programs, including this one, um, uploaded on the FreeCR website, um, this weekend. So yeah, I'll stay, look on the freecr.org.au website to get the podcasts. Yeah, thanks again for everyone for tuning in, especially our loyal listeners who tune in every week. Um, the year's just started, but um, looking forward to many more episodes um, over the course of the year. Thanks, everyone. This brings us to the end of the show. You have been listening to Friday Morning Breakfast with Green Left Radio, brought to you by Green Left Weekly Newspaper, which brings an alternative source of information that puts people and planet before profit. If you like our work, become a supporter from $5 per month at greenleft.org.au slash support or free call 1-800-634-206. Arise, you workers from their slumbers. Arise, you prisoners of want. For reason in revolt now thunders and at last since the age of Kant. Away with all your superstition. Serve all masses. Arise. We'll change henceforth the old tradition and spurn the dust to win the prize. That's right, the commies are back. Reds underneath your beds and that...